Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 11, season four of Controversy and Clarity, a podcast of the Warfighting Society. I'm your host, Damien O'Connell. I'm very excited to share today's conversation. Our guest is Dr. Ben Conable. Ben is a retired Marine intelligence officer, a former researcher at RAND, and the author of a forthcoming book on modern ground combat that I think will contribute tremendously to a wide range of discussions and debates in the Western defense world. In our conversation with Ben, we discuss his book in depth, including his thoughts on the nature and character of war, a few of the hundreds of cases of ground combat he profiles, his research approach and methods, and some of the challenges inherent in researching modern combat. In addition, we discuss the Marine Corps' Force Design 2030, Ben's work at RAN on the will to fight, wargaming, open source reporting on the war in Ukraine, and more. Here's Ben's bio. Ben is a non-resident senior fellow with the Atlantic Council's Middle East programs, the director of research at DT Institute, and an adjunct professor of security studies at Georgetown University. He's a retired Marine Corps Middle East Foreign Area Officer and Intelligence Officer with extensive experience in Iraq and the broader Middle East. He served as a cultural advisor and senior analyst in Anbar Province, Iraq, and as the Marine and Naval Attaché to the Hashemite Kingdom of Jordan. From 2009 through 2021, Ben was a senior political scientist at the RAND Corporation, where he led over 20 research projects for U.S. government and allied sponsors. His diverse research portfolio included detailed studies of Iraq security issues and Iraqi security forces, the crises in Syria and Yemen, the Russian military threat, NATO security issues, refugee dynamics and policies, irregular warfare, assessment methodologies, and intelligence policy. Ben's most recent work focused on the analysis of the will to fight and methods for analyzing, modeling, gaming, and simulating human behavior in conflict. Ben received his MA in National Security Affairs from the Naval Postgraduate School and his PhD in War Studies from King's College London. His doctoral thesis is entitled Warrior Maverick Culture, the Evolution of Adaptability in the U.S. Marine Corps. Some of his other notable works include How Insurgencies End, Embracing the Fog of War, and Will to Fight. Ben has published extensively, including with the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Foreign Affairs. Whenever I interact with Ben, I learn something or reconsider a view or belief I've long held. He always leaves me thinking, questioning, and wanting to know more. This conversation was no different. A quick editorial note, at one point in our conversation, Ben mentions the B-25 Liberator and meant to say B-24 Liberator. And now for our chat with Dr. Ben Conable. Enjoy. All right, Ben, so great to have you on the show. Really excited to chat with you and thanks so much for making the time. Thanks for having me, Damien. So I'd like to get into the book you're working on currently on modern ground combat. So would you talk about the book? What's its focus? What are you trying to accomplish with it? The purpose of the book is to help people think through the character of modern ground combat. And it's being written specifically for any military officer or staff non-commissioned officer, NCO, that is involved in any way in the profession of arms, particularly in the ground combat field. It's also going to be hopefully useful for the general public as well. And the idea is to explore the term, the character of war, specifically using ground combat as a way of thinking through the epistemology of that Term, you know, how do we think about it? How do we organize our knowledge? How do we frame that question in a way that's useful for us? How do we forecast war, particularly ground combat? 
And then what does that mean for the ways in which we shape our tactics, invest in new technologies, innovate, et cetera? What drew you to this project? How did you get involved in it? Yeah, I've been, as a retired Marine infantryman and officer, I've been interested in war my entire life. I went on to study war at the Rand Corporation and as an academic after I retired in 2009. So I've always had a particular interest in this subject. This is my profession. And particularly at RAND, it was really interesting for me to kind of go through the cycles of policymaking and reading the literature and engaging with the professionals who are responsible for characterizing warfare. And this means the people in the think tank world, political leaders, military officers, et cetera, who, who employ the term, the character of war and the nature of war. And we all do that. It's a Western framing of the term warfare. And we do so often without really thinking about what it means, uh, without having a clear definition or common understanding of that term, the character of war. And it, it has consistently struck me that we're getting, you know, we're, we're getting not just getting it wrong in terms of our forecasting, but that the process behind it, the process of, you know, the epistemology of thinking about the problem, of thinking about war in general is highly subjective. Mm -hmm. And a lot of what we describe in terms of modern warfare in particular, the way we characterize past wars, the way we frame and think about future war is driven primarily by personal interpretations and often cherry-picked historical cases. And that needs to be dealt with. And that's one of the things that I, I intend to at least try to help out with in writing yeah. this book. If we could pull the thread on that, topic a little more. Would you talk talk more about the characterizations of the character of war that you've seen and why are they so subjective? It's it's interesting that you know we're talking in 2023 and there's this massive push and there's been a push going on for a while, I think, about data and the primacy of data. And we need we need to make data informed decisions. I agree with you, we need to do a better job of defining these terms, character and nature of war. They are slippery and I think rather ill-defined. So would you just talk more about that? We have no formal definition of the term character of war or nature of war in the U.S. military. We have descriptions of both terms in various books. We study both terms in our professional training and military education, but they are ill-defined. And worse for the term, the character of war, which is thrown about by senior generals, and political leaders, et cetera. It's often self-defining, and that's the worst kind of definition, right? So when you say the character of war is a character of war, that's not helpful. Uh, and in fact, it can, it can be anathema to kind of clear thinking. And in the U.S. military in particular, when you don't have a definition of something, you often have trouble applying the term and then making it into something useful. That is a fundamental problem that we don't have a clear definition of the term, the character of war, or of the nature of war. Then if you go take it to the next step, if you can't define it, then what is its character and what is its nature? And then it just, it devolves even further into subjective opinion. Well, I think the character is X and therefore, because I am, let's say a, a four-star general or the chairman of the Joint Chiefs or the president of the United States, my opinion matters more than yours, which is a terrible way of describing something so consequential to the future of our country and the, and the state of peace and violence around the world, right? I mean, this is these are terms that drive trillions of dollars in investment and shape the ways in which we prepare for future conflict. And they're basically thrown about 
as strongly held opinion in the absence of objective research. And I think we're seeing arguments over what the character of war is right now with the Marine Corps and the retired folks saying, you know, here's our view on what combined arms means in the 21st century. You've got the Marine Corps leadership today saying the character of war has changed because of these new technologies and so on and so forth. And there's, I'd say there is no agreement between the camps of what that even means. Yeah, that debate, that very public and ugly debate between retired Marine, senior Marine generals, including at least one commandant, the current commandant and, and some of his defenders is probably emblematic of this lack, this unanchored discussion over the character of war, right? If you don't have a definition, then you can't explain it, and you don't have any objective data to, to describe it in a way that's universally accepted, then you wind up devolving into these kinds of arguments. And I'm being kind in using the term argument. I mean, this has gotten ugly and it's been an embarrassment for the Marine Corps. It's, it's really been unfortunate, but it's not surprising given the absence of kind of a centralizing, structured way of thinking about this problem. And yes, that term is thrown around frequently that the character of war is changing. Well, if you don't have a definition of the character of war, you haven't clearly described the character of current war, then how do you know it's changing? Because you say so? That's fundamentally problematic and and it it is uh, it should be concerning to people particularly in congress signing checks to invest in new weapon systems um, there are obviously other political issues there um, but there are things we can do about this right i mean we can try to make these observations more anchored in reality more objective and more thoughtful than they presently are so I had the good fortune to watch you present about your, your research and, and the writing of this book. And one of the things you said, the many things you, you've said that really struck me was we, we tend to over-dramatize the future. And I was wondering if you could talk about what you mean and how can we take a more objective view, a more clinical view of, of what's coming down the pike. If you go back and look at the characterizations of war, and particularly of ground war, right, but of war in general in the United States and elsewhere in the West, but really, in, in, I've explored the history in the United States in particular. The descriptions of future war are almost always presented in binary, dramatic terms. You know that we're on the cusp of a an extraordinary change, not just in the character of war, but in the very nature of war. And that advanced technology with the proper investments is going to allow us to completely dominate the battlefield. And inversely, if we don't invest in these major weapon systems and uh, sensors and precision capabilities, that our adversaries are going to acquire those and we are doomed. So there, these things are presented in binary and existential terms. And this goes all the way back to probably even preceding the where I started in the book with, with William Westmoreland in 1969 and testimony before Congress that is, is frequently overlooked. And Westmoreland said, look, we're 10 years from now, we're going to see a revolution in military affairs, that we, there's an entirely new battlefield paradigm. And then, you know, 10 years passed, it didn't happen. Then you, you see Andrew Kropinovich and Andrew Marshall talking about the revolution of military affairs in the early 1990s, more forecasts and warnings, dire warnings about what will happen if we don't make the right investments. Then again, in 2000 with William Owens and the book, uh, Lifting the Fog of War, we can achieve revolution in 10 years. 
then again with Bob Work at the Office of Secretary of Defense, you know, and it goes on and on. And it's it's kind of a recurring cycle. And the dramatization affects the way people think about things. It's designed to, right? It's these these very dramatic arguments are designed to influence decision makers and policymakers. They're designed to get people to shift investments in one direction, really towards advanced technology. And in the absence of objective research, in the absence of a thoughtful opposing viewpoint, they gain traction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the the arguments always have this sense of it's just like we're either in the midst of this revolution or it's just around the corner, but then it's just around the corner 10 years later. It's ju- just around the corner. And, and this isn't to say that massive changes in the conduct of war haven't happened. They they have. But th- well, let me challenge you on that. Yeah, yeah. What are the massive changes in the conduct of war? Something that is often put forth is proliferation of of drones and precision guided munitions and the getting some of these weapons in the hands of non-state actors. And right. in time, you're going to see, I know TX Hamas talks about the very real possibility of having these factories where they're mass producing drones, you know, by the tens right. of- three And 3D printing. Yeah, I, I've talked to TX about this, you know, I mean, yeah, 3D printing, which is already being employed. We, we, we put 3D printers on airplanes now and we can print parts and drones in flight. The Ukrainians are making terrific use of 3D printing to drop improvised grenades on, on Russian vehicles, et cetera, right? So yeah, certainly all of those technologies are interesting and the proliferation of drones into the hands of non-conventional military forces, if you want to use, use that uh, in just a practical term, is interesting. I, I wouldn't call that, I think the term was a massive yeah, shift, yeah. right? More importantly, there's a question here about the term revolution mm. in comparison to evolution, right? Mm-hmm. And a lot of this kind of dramatic language is tied to the concept of the revolution in military affairs and that there are these recurring revolutions in the way that we fight war, particularly in the character of war. Mm-hmm. The promise of the revolution in military affairs is that we will change the nature of war if we do it the right way. Mm-hmm. But in the interim, it's it's periodic changes, dramatic changes, revolutionary changes in the character of war. And again, in the absence of this kind of thoughtful, studied, longitudinal analysis of history, these things are presented in cherry-picked little segments that make it look like these things emerged out of nowhere. And in fact, drone technology was originally developed in in the uh, 1910s and evolved through the 1920s, was employed for the first time in World War II. There were television-guided drone kamikaze missiles used to uh, destroy German bases. For example, the base at Heligoland, there was a, I believe it was a B-25 Liberator with a TV camera attached to it that was guided directly into a target full of explosives. Mm-hmm. Right, so this is nineteen. This is the 1940s where we are employing precision-guided munitions and kamikaze drones. The Germans had the Mistel drone, which was an aircraft guided by the same kind of drone technology we use today. And Although they were never able to employ this technique, they had conceived of a drone swarm with about 100 mistels that they were going to use to fly in front of their airplanes to confuse the air defenses and soak up anti-aircraft fires while they bombed their targets in, I think it was in north of France. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and they just happened to get overrun. But 
drones have been used progressively in an evolutionary distribution across cases of war that I looked at from the 1940s all the way through today. And I, I can't say that there's been a linear progression in distribution, but if you, you know, I have looked at these cases, including ones before the, what I, what I frame as the modern era, you know, if you go back and look in, and particularly in the 1980s, drone use was prolific. Mm. The Israelis employed the Firebee drone in 1973 and in one report attached an anti-radiation missile and fired an anti-radiation missile from a Fire B target drone, uh, you know, at, I think Egyptian forces. And then they go on to professionalize the use of drones in the 1980s. The South Africans in parallel developed the Denel Dynamic Seeker drone and employed that effectively in combat at battles like Quito Quantavali. Pardon my pronunciation. I'm, I'm, you know, when you study this many cases in different languages, you you're going to get the pronunciations wrong, right? But my point is that drone use and the proliferation of drones and other technologies to include precision guided munitions has had an evolutionary spread and growth over this, you know, 75, 80 year period. And it, the, the actual history of this evolutionary growth and evolutionary distribution undermines these arguments for dramatic and massive changes in the character of war. No, I find that persuasive and I would amend my language. So would you agree that the advent of nuclear weapons, atomic bombs, does that mark a significant shift in in the character of war? Or is that, again, something that you would present as evolutionary? Yeah, if you go back and read Kropenovich and and other proponents of the revolution in military affairs, you know, they list previous revolutions. And one of those typically is the introduction of nuclear weapons uh, onto the modern battlefield. Of course, if you go back and look at the history of ground warfare, there was a period of temporary adjustment right at the end of World War II, particularly in the United States, when there was a major reduction in combat power, particularly in ground combat forces, under the assumption that nuclear weapons would obviate the need for ground combat capabilities. And we had mutually assured destruction that it eventually, in turn, obviated that whole idea. And it became clear in, very shortly after the end of World War II, and certainly by the time we were fighting in Korea, that nuclear weapons were not going to change the nature of war and probably not even change its character. So we did prepare to fight on a nuclear battlefield all the way up through the 1980s. We're starting to think about that again. But nuclear weapons did almost nothing to change the ways in which certainly ground war was fought at any point from the 1950s onward. Mm, that's fascinating. So I'd like to talk about your research methods, your approaches for the book. I know you studied a whole bunch of cases. So would you talk to us about your methods, your approaches? Where do you go searching for cases? Yeah, I started by just gathering together as many cases of ground combat as I could. And so look, there's no definition of ground combat in the US military. There's no generally agreed upon academic definition. I have a definition I propose in the book. It's fairly simple. But my my baseline for a case was two platoons. So uh, uh, the lowest level at which you typically have an officer that is capable of applying uh, indirect fire weapons. And then there has to be indirect fire use by both sides or combined arms use. So the idea that combined arms 
is a it, it only takes place in conventional wars. Of course, is not true. The vast majority of combined arms action probably has taken place in irregular warfare. If you look at, at least in frequency, so I wanted to be as inclusive as possible. So that was the that was the starting point. Anything platoon or up with indirect fire and direct fire combined. And then, as somebody who teaches and has studied war as an academic and as you know as a researcher. The last thing you ever want to do is refer to Wikipedia. However, and, and I, you know, of course, I do the typical professor thing and discourage my students from even mentioning Wikipedia. However, it is useful for the initial aggregation of, you know, what, general public knowledge. And so I started there, and then I started digging a little bit deeper. At the beginning of the project, I came up with 267 cases of ground combat between 2003 and 2022. And then as I dug into these cases, more and more were revealed, and I eventually came out to well over 500. And so I think the final database is probably going to have about 430 cases between 2003 and 2022. And then I've done, I did 45 before that just to kind of help frame things. Mm-hmm. And how do you organize these? You've, you've, you know, I've heard you talk previously about coding cases, what does that mean and and how do you code them? Keep in mind here, the whole purpose of this is to provide that objective evidence to help right the wrongs that I described earlier, right? That, you know, this lack of objective evidence leads to overly subjective decision-making and descriptions that that are harmful to the way that we prepare for war and make investments. Okay. So that's the, the purpose behind it. So by doing a large end study and picking every case out there and trying to do all of them, you remove some of the subjectivity from smaller batch uh, analyses. So I'm not picking the cases and telling you which ones are important. I'm looking at all of them. So I, I find a case, let's say, you know, ones that are well known. So the assault on Marja, Afghanistan in 2010. I go out and look for every publicly available source. I use um, Google, Google Scholar. I use uh, archives that I have access to, Twitter. I use Reddit Combat Forum for video footage. YouTube has been a tremendous resource, even though it has serious problems and the way that things are organized for searching. And I have a range of other places that I look. I also hired three research assistants to help me ensure that I miss any sources. So for every case that I did, I had the three research assistants look at each case independently without talking to each other or to me. And then once I had gathered all my sources up, I then checked against theirs to make sure I didn't miss any. And then specifically for Ukraine, I had a Ukrainian researcher help me with with those cases, just looking for sources. And once I had the sources, I picked up to eight that I would use for an annotated bibliography. I then coded using an inductive coding process. So this is inductive means that I I didn't pick things ahead of time. I did pick a few that were obvious, like, you know, were tanks used. But I wound up developing this large coding spreadsheet in Excel that has over 400 different codes. So I code for things like whether or not there were top attack anti-tank missiles, how many artillery rounds were fired in the battle, if that's known, were aircraft used for close air support, and so on and so forth. What kind of terrain were the battles fought in? And I go through each case and I look at the evidence that I have and I write down the codes in a spreadsheet. I then write about the case in a way that's descriptive and hopefully useful. And then I go through and identify the kinds of equipment that were used, the tactics that were used and the, and the terrain and, and briefly write about that. 
And then I assign each case a level of confidence. So there are differing amounts and quality of information for each one of these cases. Some of them we know a lot about. I can tell you a lot about what happened in Marja in 2010. A lot of it was recorded by soldiers and Marines on helmet cams. They gave interviews about it afterwards. I can tell you almost nothing about what happened in some major battles in the Democratic Republic of the Congo during the same time period because there were no cameras there and, and there are no Western researchers out there conducting interviews or, or, or writing books. So it doesn't mean that the battle that took place in the DRC was any less important. And in fact, it might have some important lessons for Western policymakers. It just means that it's not clearly recorded. And then at some point, we should talk about the degree to which digital information is dissipating as it's collected. Yeah. Because that's going to bear on the way that we understand ground war. I'd like to get to that next. I just wanted to ask a clarifying question. Did I hear you correctly when you said that you have a minimum of eight sources per case? Minimum of four. Minimum of four independent sources, right? So I, I have to find four independent sources to make it a viable case. There's a lot of circular reporting, and I capture as many of those circular reports and ancillary sources in a separate box. There's some of these cases have 60, 70, 80 different sources. I provide hyperlinks to all of those or, or list them out for future research if somebody wants to go back and look at them, but I spend the majority of my time on the sources that provide the most information. Got it. So it's four minimum and up to eight for the annotated bibliography. Got it, got it. So yeah, I'd like to continue by asking about the the challenges or limitations your research has encountered. And if you'd like to start with the the digital aspect and you you mentioned dissipation of of these sources, that'd be great. I am not the only one to observe this very serious problem in the way that we are recording modern cases of warfare. Eric Villard at the Army Center of Military History, he's the digital historian and archivist, has done a great job kind of explaining some of the challenges with dissolving history, disappearing hyperlinks, disappearing videos, the ephemeral nature of information in the modern era, digital, digital information. When I was at Rand, I interviewed a historian for a combatant command, I won't say which one, about just the history of the movement of U.S. military forces through this combatant command area. And that individual said, I have no idea. I couldn't begin to tell you when different battalions or units were there because our record keeping has all gone digital and it's, it's not consistent or useful. And the people that used to do this full time when we had paper records aren't there anymore. We got rid of all those people to save money. And there's this kind of passive assumption in the U.S. military and, and out in academia and also, I'd just say broadly across our entire culture, that we believe everything is being recorded in greater and finer detail and that digital records are permanent and will always be there. And we know more about what's happening around the world now than we ever have. I and others argue that that is absolutely not the case. And in fact, we may know less now than we did. And we may have skewed opinions based on this kind of what's called surveillance, this constant surveillance through video cameras, et cetera. But more importantly, a lot of these things are disappearing. So as I go back through cases from 2007, 8, 9, 10, even up to 18, 19, 20, and you search for the case and you go back through hyperlinks and videos, a lot of them are gone. Uh, A lot of the videos that people have linked to previously that might show, you know, 
maybe long form interviews or helmet cam footage or really good overhead drone footage from a battle are gone because the place that they were posted has disappeared. So the, the person who owned the channel on YouTube lost their channel and that video is now gone forever. Or the hyperlink that was hosted on a news channel is gone forever. And it's not coming back. And in some cases, the web archive folks have managed to hold on to these things, but that's completely random. So our history is disappearing, even as we record it. And the history of what's happening around the world in terms of ground combat is also disappearing as it is being recorded. I've encountered this exact problem in researching and developing decision forcing cases, particularly when it comes to engagements, battles with the Marine Corps during the GWAT era. And as a result, I've just gotten into the habit of PDFing any website I find that I think is useful or, you know, trying to rip the video of an interview. Because as you've mentioned, you may go back two weeks, a month later, whatever, to show somebody else or to, to revisit that source and it's gone. You know, it's been removed or that, you know, you get a what is it, 504, you know, timeout message from, from the website. And it, it just leads me to think how much stuff is being lost. And I think the answer is a, a tremendous amount. It's, it's a frank. tremendous amount and potentially eventually all of it. Yeah. I, I mean, yeah. Uh, and if you go and if you compare that to Vietnam, you know, this is really interesting, you know, yeah. and World War Two. I mean, but Vietnam is a great case in point because we we took the recording process to an extreme. I mean, everything was written down. Every time a patrol went out, there was a report made on the patrol and it became part of a database. Everything was recorded in terms of expenditures and usages and activities and actions and interactions and combat, you know, exchanges, et cetera, et cetera. There are miles and miles of written historical records on on the Vietnam now on the Vietnam War. Now though a lot of them are digitized. So if you go to the Texas Tech University archive, they they've done an amazing job um, you know digitizing a lot of these records. But there's still a physical uh, you know a piece of paper somewhere or a, a wet photograph somewhere that exists hopefully in perpetuity. And that is certainly not the case even for US battles that have taken place just in the last 10 years. I'll, I'll just add one more anecdote. I, I've talked to more than a few Marines who kept or entered electronic records of a patrol or, or, or you know, some combat action into a server or some sort of program while in theater, only to see that thing, that server or that that database get wiped when wiped. the deployment came to an end. Or, and and you're, you're just not getting that back. That's that's not that is gone forever. And you think gone. of all the lessons that could be learned, the analysis that could be done, the trends and patterns that we could pull if we had all that data, all these entries. And it's just, you, you can't, you can't do it. Yeah. yeah. So it is, it is going to work. You know, we wrote a lot of things to each other in emails. I, I'd say some of the most important exchanges that I had about what was happening on the ground when I was in Iraq, you know, as an intelligence officer, I put in Outlook emails back and forth and, and, you know, the things that would have been written down in previous eras uh, were on Outlook servers that, of course, were deleted. Uh, hard drives were deleted. The you know Marine Corps intelligence activity went out and tried to vacuum up all the hard drives at one point. And there's still this unresolved database sitting there of classified information that hopefully at some point will get sorted out and, and declassified. Um, there's also a huge database 
of Iraq and Afghanistan information sitting over at the Army Center of Military History. And I think it was SAIC did an amazing job building a, a front end for that. But it's, you know, it's unsorted. And it's, it's, you know, so even the things that we do preserve are very hard to search. Think about a flat PowerPoint presentation. You can't search within it. So you have to have somebody go in and manually describe what, what is in that each one of these files. And so you think you're saving labor on the front end, but in fact, you're making this much more labor intensive and much less useful for researchers in the long run. Wow. Yeah, I, I plan to return to this topic. You mentioned uh, Eric Villard. He'll be back or he'll be on the podcast in uh, a few weeks. And this is a topic that I, I'd like to deep dive into with him. He's the best one to talk to about this. Are there other challenges, difficulties, problems you've run into with respect to researching this book? I think the, the the hardest part is just finding equivalent information, right? And that I've, I've talked about the DRC. There are so many instances of combat out there, ground combat. Maybe even most of the actual instances of ground combat that have taken place around the world in the last 20 years at least have gone unrecorded. Uh, and that includes in Iraq and Afghanistan. How many, you know, how many of these battles in Iraq and Afghanistan and you know probably now in Ukraine as well took place in the shadows uh, or the, you know there just didn't happen to be someone there or the you know it was written down in a in a sentence and that's all that we're ever going to know about it and there was never there were never any interviews done so this gets right back to this challenge of describing of characterizing warfare you know first start with the definition got it now what is the character of war? break it down further. What is the character of ground combat? Well, what do you mean by that? Do you mean only the cases we know? Because that's not an accurate reflection of what's actually happening on the ground. Right. Um, is it only the cases we know that are well recorded and easy, easy to analyze and digest? That's not accurately reflective either. And so this has been a real learning experience for me as I go through these things to see the disparity of knowledge of human knowledge when it comes to warfare and particularly ground combat yeah you mentioned earlier that your your cases the cases you chose feature both sides having indirect fire assets or or combined you know they're practicing combined arms could you talk about the decision to include idf or combined arms as a discriminating factor and has this made you leave out many cases as a retired marine and as a student of warfare obviously combined arms is, is a huge kind of discriminator for just about anything that we do, right? I mean, it, it's not war if it's not combined arms. And I think that is that is actually borne out. So of all the things that I found I disagreed with and, and you know, uh, thought needed to be corrected, the idea that combined arms is is a good discriminator is kind of stuck, right? And in the Marine Corps, you know, I'm biased to some extent, and I'm, I always have to be careful about that. But uh, Marine Corps' warfighting definition of combined arms, I think, is has been really useful. If you go back and read FMFM1 or MCDP1 warfighting, it says combined arms at the most basic level is, you know, two fire teams fighting against each other. And one of them's firing a grenade launcher and shooting rifles and puts the enemy on the horn, horns of a dilemma, right? So it's a grenade launcher used indirectly while you're shooting direct fire weapon. Now, I didn't do grenade launcher. That's just, it's too problematic. But I did find that that the use of mortars at the very least, um, and, and typically mortars, rockets, some combination, really helped me to identify cases that had some meat on the bones, right, that were substantive. 
Otherwise, you have to include every little skirmish, and then you start getting into counterterror operations and things like that. And it would have completely overwhelmed me. So I think it is a useful discriminator, and I would, I, I, I think I, it actually helped me, and I don't think I left out any important cases because of that. What it did point to, though, however, were cases listed as battles in the canon, the the modern canon of ground combat that we think of as important battles that actually involved, did not involve combined arms. Uh, and I won't call those out here, but I, I will identify them in the book. Interesting. So you talked about your belief in or the utility of combined arms being borne out by your research. Are there cases you've researched that have changed the way you think about modern combat? No, not any individual case. And I think that's really important, right? In that in the absence of this kind of large and in-depth understanding of the overall cases, right? I mean, you're, you're really getting into numbers here and you're, you're able to kind of see things from a broader perspective, that individual cases become less important. And in the absence of this large end study, the individual cases take on greater importance. And this is what you saw in the prognostications that I described earlier, right? That Individual cases are called out. They're used as examples. And while we saw, you know, we saw the use of precision guided munitions in the Gulf War, therefore there was a revolution in military affairs. But if you look at the spread of cases that took place 10 years before and 10 years after, it tends to put things in greater perspective. So actually, it's not the individual cases that matter. It's the spread of cases over time that really give the important impression of evolution, not revolution. So maybe this is an inappropriate question to ask, but personally for you, which cases, if any, have you found most fascinating or revealing? I've looked at cases before the 2003 period, so just to kind of help frame things. And I think the one that really stands out is, and again, I apologize if I get the pronunciation wrong, but Quito Quanavali, right? And in this battle in Angola between the South Africans and UNITA and the Angolans and the Cubans. So you have... Soviet advisors, Cuban soldiers at the at probably about at the division level, employing full combined arm suites, Soviet supplied combined arm suites, you know, BMPs, 122 millimeter rockets, heavy artillery, tanks on both sides, and the South Africans using their indigenously developed capabilities like the Oliphant tank, the Danel dynamic sneaker drone, laser guided anti-tank missiles, and all sorts of other reconnaissance surveillance assets. And then all of these irregular forces and less well-trained and less capable militaries thrown into the mix, minefields, trenches, bunkers, armor infantry team assaults back and forth over the course of many months, bombing from MiG-23s and MiG-21. I mean, this, this goes on and on in a very you know, kind of intensive, fairly large scale battle that is almost unknown probably to most people in, in uh, the Western military profession. So it's it's battles like that that jump out to me because you see the use of drones and laser guided anti-tank missiles alongside T-55 tanks, AK-47s, BM-21, multiple launch rocket systems, which looks a lot like combat today in Ukraine. When I've heard you talk previously about your work in this book, you've pointed out that there are cases where armor has been successful on its own. And the going conventional thought is armor should be part of a combined arms team. They should be fighting you know, alongside with infantry 
cue many videos coming out of Ukraine of Russian armor operating on its own and then and then getting destroyed. Could you talk about instances or you know broadly some, some of the cases you've seen where armor is able to operate successfully independently? Yes, but let me preface it by saying it's it seems to be again these these cases are, I'm not claiming they're representative, right? Sure. Okay. From the cases that I looked at, those cases seem to be the exception where armor operates independently and successfully. Hmm. For the most part, armor is more successful when it is applied as part of an infantry armor team. I think that that is something that held out through the course of this analysis. And, you know, the Syrian civil war, I think we're going to get to that later, but there are great examples there of armor operating independently and suffering for it and infantry armor teaming on both sides being very successful. If you go back to World War II, and again, I'm going to get the pronunciation wrong, but the Battle of Mutanshang in China against the Japanese, Soviets fighting against the Japanese, they were able to operate independently. And if you think about post-World War II, Soviet, the evolution of Soviet doctrine post-World War II and operational maneuver groups, that battle in particular would give you the impression that the Soviets were actually capable of pulling it off, right? And that you had fast-moving armor units flying around the flanks and attacking the Japanese, fixed Japanese defenses and doing so very successfully. At the lower tactical level, you see examples where tanks are operating successfully, even in Ukraine, right? So a lot of cases where buttoned-up tanks without infantry don't do well. For example, at Brovery in Ukraine, there was an anti-armor ambush of a Russian column using NLAW rocket launchers and then a couple of T-64, probably BV model tanks froze an entire BTG in its tracks, killed the BTG commander. The Ukrainians then called in artillery. They used Stugna P anti-tank missiles and didn't destroy a huge number of vehicles, but forced this unit to turn back. And if you look at the video of the case, the drone video, you can see how things might have gone differently if they had deployed infantry. But there are also cases in Ukraine of individual Ukrainian tanks moving through Russian infantry lines and trenches and decimating the Russians because they don't have effective small unit anti-tank capabilities. So, but I would argue again that those are the exceptions. Fascinating. You've studied, correct me if I'm wrong, many cases of U.S. units in Iraq, Afghanistan. Many observers, if not most, would say U.S. units perform well. Have you observed any negative patterns or themes in U.S. small unit performance for instance, you know, some critics have argued against the so-called bump and bomb tactics practiced by by some units in Afghanistan. So could you just comment on that? I want to shy away from criticizing counterinsurgency combat tactics because I think, you know, the way that we seek out and destroy the enemy in a counterinsurgency fight is is more complicated than than my studies are really allow for. However, there were obvious tactical failures in particularly in Afghanistan, but also in Iraq where we placed over-reliance on air support and our ability to mass fires in support of infantry that we put into very dangerous situations. So I'm thinking here about the Battle of Wana and, and others like that. And surprisingly repeated itself, you know, I mean, where we had in particular U.S. Army units sticking platoons out in the middle of nowhere in low ground, you know, violating every rule of tactical common sense. And I think done so under the inherent belief that no matter what happened, we would be able to scramble AH-64 helicopters and fixed-wing jets and destroy the Taliban, almost teasing the Taliban out into the open by sticking these platoons out in the middle of nowhere. 
you've seen the movie Restrepo, there's probably another example right there. And it, and it didn't work out that way, right? In fact, that in some cases, these platoons were almost completely destroyed. They hung on only by grit, you know, will to fight and, and effective tactics. And the, the air support came in late. So the tyranny of terrain, the tyranny of physical distance affect the degree to which supporting arms are effective or are, are less effective. And I think that if I had to pass along any preliminary advice, you know, before I've really had a chance to digest all of this, it is, you know, there are some fundamental aspects to the environment, distance, terrain, altitude, cover, concealment, that technology cannot solve. And they need to be dealt with on their face. We talked very briefly or alluded to the, the Syrian civil war. And elsewhere, I've heard you say there's a great deal that we can learn about modern conventional combat from the, the Syrian civil war. What are some insights, interesting things you've, you've gleaned from researching cases from that conflict? There were, I believe, 95 or so out of the 500 cases of ground combat from the Syrian civil war between, you know, out of, out of all of the 2003 to, to 2022 cases. So they make up a substantial portion of the overall caseload. The quantity, the volume, the frequency, the intensity of the combat that took place on the ground in Syria between the Syrian Arab army, the Free Syrian army, Al-Nusra Front, the Islamic State, the United States, Turkey, it goes on, Iran, etc. I mean, this is this has been a cauldron of ground combat for about a decade, and I have found it to be poorly explored. However, it is very well recorded in comparison to some of the other cases. You know, there could be an entire field of study just for the Syrian civil war. So you have, in general, you know, these various sides fighting against each other. You have the Syrian Arab army, which is this conglomeration of militias and, and conventional and special forces and Iranian proxies and Lebanese Hezbollah, et cetera, applying Soviet tactics, a mix of Soviet tactics and tactics that Hezbollah learned fighting the Israelis using T-72 tanks, BMP-2 infantry fighting vehicles, but also T-55s and BMP-1s, depending on the unit. You know, newer better units have newer stuff, worse units have older stuff, and everything in between there. Fixed-wing air support, rotary-wing air support, Russians coming in, dropping iron bombs. And so basically using all of the tools of, and, and all, drones everywhere all the time, using all the tools of conventional combat against these, what are we generally considered to be irregular forces? So Free Syrian Army, Nusra, Islamic State in particular. But if you look at the way in which these irregular, so-called irregular forces organized and fought, in fact, they were organized and fought very much like conventional ground combat forces. So you see company-level organization, company-level leadership. You see excellent squad infantry tactics and and certainly in many cases, very good platoon level infantry tactics. Out of necessity, you see the learning over time. You know, for, So if you go back and look at the cases in 2011 and you see the evolution of the way in which these groups fought through 2016-17, you see the, the evolution in their, their tactical approach to combined arms. So better integration of mortars and rockets and artillery. We don't think about these guys having artillery units, but they do. 122 millimeter artillery, 130 millimeter artillery, 120 millimeter heavy mortars, all sorts of improvised rocket systems integrated in with platoons and even company level infantry assaults with armor, with T-55, T-62 tanks, 
moving in concert with the infantry, going up into berms and smashing through the berms and firing right over the heads of the soldiers, integrated anti-armor units with anti-tank guided missiles and, and so on, right? So everything that you would want to see or you think you would, you would see in a fight in Ukraine, you often also see in the battlefields in Syria in the decades that preceded the major part of the Russia-Ukraine war. And so to me, it is an unexplored goldmine for understanding ground combat. Yeah, yeah. Urban battles are often considered inherently costlier than battles in other types of terrain. One, do you agree with that statement? And and I know your research isn't isn't comprehensive and, and representative, but what does your research point to with respect to this thought that if it's an urban battle, it's going to be higher in casualties than, say, one that's conducted in a rural area or the tree line? I understand how military historians and researchers come to that conclusion because urban fights tend to be very dramatic. There are, you know, it's very difficult to spot the enemy. The engagement ranges are very often very close range. The opportunities for ambush are, are greater and so on and so forth. However, it is also much harder to direct fires effectively in urban terrain. There are elements of urban terrain, in particular places like Shusha and Nagorno-Karabakh, where the physical makeup of the buildings prevents effective penetration. You know, so you have big, heavy stone walls that make the kinds of fires you would normally see effective in open terrain much less useful. So I don't think there's any way to substantiate that conclusion. What have your cases revealed about modern amphibious operations? Before I started this project, I, you know, I was aware of a thesis by Ed Nevglosky, who did his work at the Marine Corps Command and Staff College on the Special Landing Force in Vietnam, which was a Marine amphibious force that I was unaware of before I read his thesis. And he describes 62 well-recorded amphibious combat cases just involving this one unit over a four-year period in the Vietnam War. And to me, that was a remarkable find that there's this whole history of, of Marine Corps amphibious operations that, I, that most Marines are probably unaware of. And then if you expand beyond that, you look at the cases that I've examined, you see more and more examples of amphibious operations being conducted by other military forces around the world. And, you know, you have to think about what your definition of an amphibious operation is. You know, it's a bunch of guys in small boats crossing a lake. Does that constitute an amphibious operation? Maybe, maybe not. However, Sri Lankan army on landing craft with multiple launch rocket systems and patrol boats firing directly into well-prepared Tamil Tiger defenses on a beach and, and having a video of these guys trying to clear mines as they're being taken under machine gun fire, I think that does constitute a case of amphibious warfare. And I think there are a large number of cases of amphibious warfare that in, in, at least U.S. Marine historians probably could do a lot of work on to, you know, to expand our collective understanding of amphibious warfare. And there's a policy issue at stake here, too. When we make claim arguments for we, and I say, the, you know, the Marines, right? So when the, when the commandant of the Marine Corps makes arguments for the need for amphibious shipping, he does so based on the idea that there's still value in amphibious warfare as a concept, as a tactical concept. Well, it's much harder to make that argument if you have very few modern cases of amphibious warfare to point to. And it's much easier to make that argument potentially if you can say, well, actually, in the, in the last 20 years, there have been, and I don't know what the number would be, let's say 30, 40, 50 cases of amphibious warfare 
and collectively over the last 50 years, you, you, you know, they, they would start to stack up and you can start to characterize those cases. So there's a lot of work, I think, that still needs to be done in amphibious warfare. So one of the themes, at least that I'm coming to in our interactions and in hearing you talk about your work is this ignorance of, of knowledge, ignorance of the data set of battles that make up conventional combat. And you mentioned that, you know, even the cases that you're exploring are, are the ones that have been documented. And there are plenty, perhaps many more or most that, that haven't been documented. What advice can you give, you know, listeners to become, try to become less ignorant of modern combat? Of course, you know, when, when your book comes out, read that. But what are what are some bits of advice that you would you'd give people uh, to, to try to become more aware of all the different sorts of battles and, and approaches to, to warfare that, that are out there. Reading books alone is not going to solve the problem because there is a, an, a canonical approach to military case study research where the same cases keep getting repeated and studied over and over again throughout the course of our professional education process and, and in all of our various curricula. You know, you have to go and find information from other sources. As ephemeral as digital information is, there's also some great stuff out there. And what I found most useful in terms of really understanding what's happening on the ground are long-form podcast interviews. There's a podcast called uh, School of War. There's one interview I think of in particular with this guy, O.C. Vest, talking about the Battle of Marja, interviewed by a, a fellow platoon leader who was there with him. Great insight into what was happening on the ground, how battles were fought, how tactical decisions were made, how technology was used how the enemy acted and reacted. And so those things are, are tremendously useful. So if you like podcasts, there are plenty of them to go out there and look for. This would be a good one too as well, right? So, and then the interviews on YouTube and other channels with combatants, with English subtitles, they're harder to find, but there are some amazing interviews, particularly that the Ukrainians are doing with their, their soldiers and officers, fresh out of the battles that they've just fought. And they're being done, you know, possibly perhaps for propaganda use, but there are also great insights into the way these battles are fought, and they also tend to intersperse these interviews with combat footage from that location. So typically, you go back and look at a History Channel study of a battle. They take stock clips, and you you know if you know what you're talking about, you can tell very quickly that the clip they're showing has absolutely nothing to do with the battle that they're describing, and it's very frustrating for people that take this stuff seriously. There, yeah, and, there were no and, tiger tanks in France, nineteen forty. So you know, stop. Ex <laughs> right. So yeah, ex that kind of stuff, right? So, but if you look at some of the better video interviews that are being done today, they intersperse head cam footage from the interviewee. Then you get the video view of it and the description. So everything is brought to life in a very real way. But it requires you to sit down for 20, 30 minutes and just focus on one thing, which I know is difficult for everybody these days. Yeah. So you've spoken about how you'd like your book to provide an opportunity for others to build on, refine, improve, to further research on modern ground, conventional combat, let me say modern ground combat in general. We'll get to the conventional irregular distinction in a moment. What forms might this follow-on work take? Are, are there particular areas that you'd like people to to focus on, you know, after the book comes out or, you know, you just want people to find their way to what they think is most valuable and useful and and go from there? There are two things. The first is the approach and the second is the database. 
the approach is is important and that there's an I, I think there's a collective belief that it's just too hard to do this and that it it you know you can't look at all of the different instances of ground combat because there are too many of them it's too hard to describe all of them there are the disparities in the value and quality of information across each case and therefore it's just not done and and research requires money you know this takes time and money and it's difficult to come across and and there are not many proponents of this kind of research but now that I've done it. Whether or not I do it well is up to pe- other people to judge, but it can be done. And it just requires some focus and dedication and the willingness to do it. And so I'm hoping that that example will lead others to take this more detailed approach and to set uh, set out a, a more detailed evidentiary basis for decision-making. And then the second thing is that I'm going to make this database, once I get it all polished up, available to researchers. And, and it's in Excel. It can be built upon. They can add Every new case that occurs after you know my end date and at the end of 2022, they can go back retroactively and add cases all the way back through World War One if they want to. And you know, there's this framework that I've hoped to have created to to allow for an even larger study of ground combat cases, more comprehensive, and get to the point where at some point somebody can make the claim that it is representative. And now we've got a much better basis for characterizing war, forecasting war, and and making important decisions about our future. So based on what you've drawn from your research, what suggestions or advice would you give military leaders on how can we adjust, how can we improve training and education to meet the changing demands of war, how, how war is being fought today, if that makes sense? Sure. No, that makes sense. And I, I think you start with helping people understand the rate and meaning of change. And, you know, it, that starts with helping people understand not the specifics of the most modern cases and the examples that proponents of different theories of modern war want you to absorb, but to think about the meaning of the term character of war, the meaning of the term nature of war, to think about everything in a, in a kind of linear and, and more objective historical context. Mm-hmm. And that is within reach, I think, for at least our professional education programs. It might require some retooling. But that, you know, that fundamental change, not have everybody consist, you know, continually absorbing the most dramatic modern case and drawing in many cases, unsubstantiated conclusions. I'll give a a historical example here, a recent one. You had the war between Ethiopia and the TPLF, and you had the battle between Armenia and Azerbaijan and Nagorno-Karabakh. At the tail end of those two wars, some rather important and, I would argue, extreme judgments were made about the changing character of war, and particularly the use of drones and precision-guided munitions. That if you go back and look at these cases in detail now, in fact, it's very hard to substantiate those conclusions. And I'm sure somewhere that Ethiopia, Tigray, and Nagorno-Karabakh have made their way into PME. Um, and have and I know from public interviews given by ground combat service leaders that both of those wars were used to shape multi-domain operation concepts in the army and force design for the Marine Corps. And if we got those wrong, then that's something that we can go back and do do a better job with. In particular, the Ethiopia-Tigray War, 
if you think you know something about that war, maybe you have terrific access to some great classified information that I don't have access to, that's fine. But in the public domain, it just doesn't exist. Our understanding of what happened on the ground in Ethiopia and Tigray is extraordinarily shallow. What are your thoughts on, you know, I, I say this somewhat facetiously, the, the sacred three to one ratio that military doctrine the world over, or at least in the U.S., suggests or, or demands is, is required to pull off a successful attack. Does your research bear out application of this ratio? Do you, do you find value in it? I wouldn't want to, to try to substantiate or make any kind of counterarguments to this kind of Clausewitzian you know, uh, notion of this, or maybe, maybe it's, was it, I can't remember who, who came up with the ratio, but yeah, I, the, it I wouldn't, I wouldn't argue against it and I wouldn't argue for it because I don't think we have the data to, to bear that out. I don't even think in most cases of, of known conventional war that we can accurately say how many combatants were on the field at the point of contact. So I don't think there's any way to add to that argument. Got it. If we could return to the topic of capturing personal experience, oral histories, things like that, what are your thoughts on the work of Bing West and, and specifically his, his small unit action in Vietnam book? Yeah, it's a great book. And and look, if you, you mentioned earlier the the fact that a lot of these things weren't recorded. And and I made that argument too in Iraq and Afghanistan. However, a lot of them were recorded by the units that fought in these battles in you know, single slide sketches that were provided and then stored somewhere, and they may still be available. The problem is it's single source, it's one view, and it, and that is that is also true of of what I think has been tremendous work by Bing West and really useful work looking at small unit actions. The Army has done good work. The Marine Corps has done decent work going back and interviewing people and then publishing combat experiences. The Modern War Institute has the Spear podcast. There is great value in these studies and in the format in which they're presented, and I think they should continue. However, because they're single source, because it, you're just looking at the battle from one side or from one angle, it doesn't have this kind of holistic value that you really need to understand what happened and to learn from it. You can absorb things in very general terms, but the specific kind of analysis you need requires multiple sources, multiple types of information. So the kind of work that we're trying to do in Ukraine for the Battle of Motion with my colleague, James Sladden out in the UK, we're going on the ground, walking the battle space, interviewing people on the ground as we walk around, conducting post-combat interviews with as many combatants as possible, getting aerial views, bringing in other sources, drawing maps, right? Trying to create this holistic picture. And there are plenty of great examples out there. Actually, if people want to go in and have good reads that are easy to look at some of these battles, the Osprey series of battle studies, you know, I think people probably look askance at them to some extent because they sometimes they don't look professional, but they're a lot of them are really well done. And they have terrific maps and integrated interviews and technical studies of different weapon systems used. And they're very useful for learning. And they also provide a great example of how we could do this better. Yeah, no, and I second that. I think the the mini series that Osprey puts out are are excellent, and they've got titles covering battles, campaigns uh, from antiquity to today, and they continue to churn out just really, I think, top notch work. What would an organization ideally design to conduct the sort of research that you're engaged in, that you and your your colleague are engaged in? What would that look like? I mean, as far as staffing or funds, capabilities, if if you had a blank check and you could build an organization to do this stuff 
that you're doing, what would that look like? You really just need people that know how to conduct research. And you don't need a huge team. Right? I mean, you need people who can dedicate their time to a problem that are willing to get up out of their seat and from behind the computer and go into the field to be there perhaps in harm's way. So you can think here about the military historian programs, but those aren't enough, right? It's There's got to also be a way to capture information like drone footage and, and helmet cam videos and all these other things. So I would say that, you know, taking something like the military historian program, having folks that are dedicated full-time and then adding to that and having a way to structure it in a way like a holistic research project and think about it from the beginning, like a book project, you know, and, and maybe using the Osprey framing as, as an example, it can be done, yeah. right? And it, it's just a matter of will and money. Could you talk about the ethical and, and practical challenges to doing and publishing primary source oral histories and, and, and related materials? Yeah, there, there are issues in particular with the digital material that is thrown out on the internet that you are not collecting, right? So there's there's a difference between research and the way that I was trained to do it at RAND and the way that I ran research programs at RAND and research where you're sitting on your rear end in front of your computer absorbing things that are on the internet. And there is this, you know, you might maybe a capital R, lowercase r differentiation between those two terms, right? Research with a capital R I'm being a little facetious, is funded, structured. There's a plan behind it. You have a budget. You have a, a theory of, you have a methodology. You are applying, if you're U.S. government funded, you have to apply U.S. codes for protecting individuals, anonymity, and there are quality assurance mechanisms and all of this other stuff. So you are, you're extraordinarily careful about the way that you're gathering the information. You're controlling the collection of the information. You're creating the information. You're seeing you're seeing how it's gathered and you understand all of its strengths and weaknesses. When you're just absorbing things off the internet, that is much more fraught and dangerous. And you're also exposing yourself to things that might be unethical, but it takes that knowledge as a professional researcher to avoid things like that. So there, it's a fraught process, ethically, morally, perhaps, and then also procedurally. Mm -hmm. If we could, I'd like to turn now to first your work on the will to fight, and then uh, talk a little bit about war games. So could you talk about your work at RAND on, on the will to fight? What is will to fight? How do you measure it? What did your research on this, this concept entail? This was another gap that I and a bunch of colleagues at RAND identified that we, we don't have a good understanding of the term. You know, so just like the character of war, what is the will to fight? There is no formal definition in the US military. We can't define it as a term, and then we can't tell you what it is for a unit or, uh, you know, from the squad up to a division in any organization from one minute to the next. So that's a significant gap if you believe in the Clausewitzian ideal that war is a contest of two opposing independent and irreconcilable wills, and that will to fight is the single most important factor in war. So again, no definition, no ability to analyze or assess or apply. And so we set about addressing that. We had seven funded projects over a course of five years at RAND. We came up with a theory, a model, and a bunch of tools to help assess. We came up with a definition at the military level, will to fight is the disposition and decision to fight, act, or persevere as needed. That took us a year, by the way, to get that kind of simple, distilled 
definition. Side note, that's being used now by the Defense Intelligence Agency, and it was put into the NDA this year. So it had, it's gotten some traction. Um, you ask, how do you measure it? And our argument is that you can't measure it. It is not something that can be quantified in any useful way. You can take qualitative and quantitative information and feed it into an assessment process. And that's the trick here is to take a holistic approach to thinking about human behavior and then to assess it. Now, for my study, the current study on the character of war, you know, will the fight takes a lot of time and effort to understand, takes a lot of insight. And it's something that has to be done gradually over time to give you a baseline. I just didn't have the resources to do it for the current study. But it, it, you know, that is another thing that this database could be used for is to bridge and go back and do will the fight studies for each one of these cases. So you've done tabletop games on the will to fight. How do you abstract something that seemingly is already very abstract, you know, the will or the will of a unit? So how do you do that? Uh, What did you take away from these games? We applied the model that we developed, which is really just a list of factors and characteristics. So 61 major factors or 29, sorry, 29 major factors and 61 sub factors. And we turned it into a, a series of games. So there's a tactical squad to platoon level game with 28 millimeter figures. We had a battalion level game that we were developing. And then we had a NATO Russia level game at the strategic political level. And games are useful for helping leaders think through problems, right? They're helpful for conceptualizing problems and challenging people that are going to have to make very difficult decisions without actually having to risk anything. But games are always just games. Like a model is always just a model. They don't prove anything. You can never validate a military concept through a game. That's an an important point to take away from you know, from my work and, and I think from the work of a lot of others as well, they can help you think through, but they can't validate. And unfortunately, what we're seeing today is, you know, there's a tremendous emphasis placed on gaming and simulation. I thought it was terrific. It was really useful. I got involved in a lot of it. I led research projects on both games and simulation for World of Fight and other, other issues. But then there was kind of an overreach. And, you know, what you saw, including in the Force Design 2030 write-ups, tremendous emphasis placed on the value of games and their ability to validate concepts through gaming. And I think we have to be very cautious. So we can talk more about the, we'll call them dangers or potential pitfalls of, of war games. Validation being one, there's hand-waving or, or fairy dusting, if you will, of scenarios. There's designer, player, sponsor bias. What, what dangers have you seen most frequently in war gaming? And what advice might you have to try to combat them or, or mitigate those sorts of dangers? I'll give you one specific and well-known example. You know, I worked with my colleagues at Rand on the war game for the Baltics. It was a large-scale game that involved typically would involve you know, 20 to 30 or more people. There was a team of, you know, I think about eight or 10 Rand folks that ran the game. It was an enormous tabletop with hundreds and hundreds of chips representing various units. And it, you know, it was an impressive game. It was a great way to think through this enormous problem of how do you deal with a Russian invasion of the NATO country, NATO countries. And they ran the game at least 30, 35 times with different audiences. I actually 
brought one of those games together in Cambridge for the, for a European community. And, you know, the, the results were always the same. The Russians always crushed NATO in every one of those games. And, you know, the, the kind of preponderance of evidence built up, well, we've run this game 30 to 35 times and every time the Russians win, therefore, if we don't make changes, the Russians are going to beat us on the battlefield. Taking the idea that, you know, there's this interesting learning tool and then extrapolating it to, well, we've now proven that we're going to lose a war against the Russians. That's where it gets dangerous, right? And and it was it was uh, overreach that was uh, you know identified at the time by various people in in the defense community, and the Rand folks took a lot of heat for it. Um, more importantly, from my perspective, you know, from the work I did on World of Fight, there were, there was no human element functionally baked into that game, and there was no World of Fight component to it at all. Just some hand waving, as you said. And so when games are taken too seriously like that. They can lead to bad decisions. In this case, it actually was helpful in that it stimulated the people, in particularly in the Euro- European command and in the U.S. Army, to think more about short-range air defense and anti-tank capabilities and mass in ways that I think probably were helpful for the fight in Ukraine. But that was happenstance, and it could have gone in the wrong direction, right? And certainly, our assumptions about what the Russians were capable of were just flat-out wrong. So, yeah, I think that's a, that's a great example of where it can go wrong. When did you first encounter wargaming? I assume it was as a as a marine, and you know, do you recall your reaction to it? Because some people have a very negative and visceral reaction. This is silly. <laughs> it's it's a game. There have been plenty of folks in the army who avoid using. You know, think about tactical decision games. They don't call them that. They call them tactical decision exercises because there's a there's a frivolousness associated with the term game in, in many people's minds. So yeah, when, when did you encounter Wargaming? As a child, uh, you know, I, I, I've been playing war games since I was, you know, first understood what they could be. So, you know, I'm trying to think back to is it Panzer Le- Squad Leader and then Advanced Squad Leader and Panzer Leader. I'm trying to think of all the other ones, but you know, the there's these tabletop games that, that we played. And then of course I played, you know, computer simulations and, and, and everything else all the way through my adulthood, tactical decision games as a Marine. And then I designed games, ran game projects as a researcher at Rand. So I, you know, I'm not, a, I wouldn't call myself a gaming expert, but I have plenty of experience in playing and running games. And it's, it's a shame that the overreach is there, but it's also a shame that it's looked at, looked at askance by some people, you know, and, and I get it. There is a childishness to it, right? I mean, it is really just grown people standing around a table with a bunch of pieces of cardboard having fun to some extent, right? And I, I understand that derision. And, it, you know, it's up to the gaming designers and, and people to kind of nudge nudge folks away from that. And I think most people that are introduced to them wind up seeing some value in them as long as they're well-prepared. The people that are running the game are thoughtful and don't try to oversell things. And, you know, to some extent, you do want to keep it fun, right? There's a delicate balance there. So wargaming is always very personality dependent. Mm. You know, the, it, it often, the success or failure of a war game often doesn't boil down to the, the, the game mechanics or the, you know, the topic of the game or whatever. It often boils down to the people running the game and, and whether or not they have the right personality for it. What are your thoughts on the Marine Corps' forthcoming Wargaming Center? They've poured a lot of money into it. It's a big project, you know, a sizable building that promises all sorts of capabilities. What's your reaction to the Marine Corps building this thing? 
I can't speak to whether or not they've made a good investment. You know, I, I don't, I would have to go back and look at their entire budget. You know, and I'm in touch with those guys and, and I support what they're doing. I actually donated some material to them and I, I really hope it is well used by the Marine Corps and the rest of the joint community. So I, I'm in general a supporter. Again, I would just reiterate my concerns about overreach. The more impressive looking the setup, sometimes the more convincing it can be to get people to believe that it, it represents something it doesn't. But I would also say that you can do it on a very low budget too. And I think folks like Sebastian Bay repeatedly make that point, you know, where he, he produces these fairly cheap games and, and probably gets a lot of value out of them. And again, it's about the person running the game and helping to people to think through it more so than the facility or the, or the tools. I'd like to talk a little more about Ukraine. We can touch on, on Afghanistan and, and modern warfare more generally. A, a lot of folks, a lot of pundits, people who wear the uniform, who don't, they've, they've weighed in on the war in Ukraine, whether it's blogs or going on TV. What's your take on the, the reporting, the, the quality of the reporting you've, you've seen? Do these, at least what you've seen, did they help our understanding of, of the war in Ukraine? Do they muddy it? Is it somewhere in between? Somewhere in between. Yeah. I, you know, this is one of these cases where, you know, normally in, in terms of my broader research, one of the points I'm trying to make is that you don't want to take people at face value, even if they have a great reputation, right? Because this, the, the issues are too big. There's too much at stake, right? So this is not about the subjective value of somebody's opinion, whether it's good or bad. However, when you've got when you're trying to have, have someone summarize and explain all these complex things happening, there is some value to having someone who really knows what they're talking about walk through things. And this is where I would draw distinctions. There's there are the people who explain what has happened and what is happening. And I've seen a lot of good stuff on Sky News with that. And then there are the people that clearly are bought into the Ukrainians winning. I am too. I, you know, I want to see the Ukrainians defeat the Russians. I'm not going to be shy about that. But I also know that that colors my my opinions on the war and, and the way that I talk about it. So I think there are other folks that don't have any concerns about that. The more kind of objective and less opinionated and more focused on present and past that people are, the greater value there is, the more opinionated they are, the stronger their feelings, and the more they talk about what's going to happen, the less interested I am. So you you may uh, not like this question, but where do you expect the the war to go from here? You know? <laughs> yeah, so I realize I'm asking you to 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 engage in uh, I don't know punditry is the right word, but yeah, you know based on the research you've seen, you know the reporting that is coming out that that you've been able to see, are you expecting you know the Ukrainian offensive later in the year? Do you think the Ukrainians can win? How do we define winning? Well, I think they've clearly defined it as getting back every inch of territory. And I think that's probably the right way to define it. Whether or not that's achievable, I'm not going to begin to guess. And so I'm going to avoid your question and I'm going to instead throw something else out there. We are collectively, because of our own internal politics, placing the Ukrainians under tremendous pressure to come up with a spring offensive in order, they, they, they feel that they need to demonstrate momentum in order to keep the West on their side and to keep the flow of arms and munitions and everything else going in their direction. And, you know, the fickle nature of American politics, I think, are on full display, and they have good reason to feel that way. Very counterproductive. You know, they would be far better off to hold things in stasis and 
put more preparation and time into their eventual counteroffensive. I think this is my personal opinion, again, subjective opinion, and have a fall offensive than to try to rush it in the springtime. And unfortunately, I think they're going to piecemeal the advanced technology that we're giving them into the front lines in ways that may actually not be helpful. If you look at the front lines of the war in Ukraine, it looks like the front line of any war, you know, going back to World War One, you know, and especially when you have a very long and broad front, that it's a war of salience, right? So you know, a unit makes an advance and now their flanks are exposed and they need to now make parallel advances in order to even out the front lines. And, you know, every time they expose a salient, the opposing force tries to cut it off. And so it's this risk versus reward. Do we do we extend a salient here and can we consolidate and protect the flanks of that salient long enough to even out the front line in a way that's going to be favorable for us? If you rush a counteroffensive with all of the incredibly complex things that need to happen, you know, coordination of fires, starting with, you know, just doing a great job identifying the Russians' front lines and their defense and depth capabilities, their interior lines of communication, their logistics, you know, identifying the gaps, the weaknesses in their in their front, and then understanding your own capabilities and thinking, okay, if we extend a salient into let's say down, you know, down to the coast and you try to cut off Crimea, can we hold the flanks of that salient? And the more rushed you are, the more likely you are to extend risk and expose your flanks. And I think that's that's not a great way to think about an offensive. So instead of forecasting, I would just suggest that maybe collectively all of us should encourage the Ukrainians to wait. Mm-hmm. I think it's fair to say all observers have been surprised by various aspects of the war in Ukraine to include the the Russian and Ukrainian forces performance. If you've been surprised, what has surprised you most about the Russian and Ukrainian performance? All of it. Yeah. Yeah. And and I shouldn't be right. And if I had, if I had done the research, so I got it wrong along with a lot of other people. I love the folks that go back now and say that they knew this was going to happen the whole time. There were a couple, I'm aware of a couple of people that say, don't, don't count the Ukrainians out. And, uh, they can rightfully go back and say that they got it right. But most most of us got it wrong, right? And I wish I had done the work that I had done ahead of time, because if you go back and look at the fighting in Ukraine in 2014 and 2015, and you look at the the tenacity with which the Ukrainians fought at, at places like Donetsk Airport, and you can go down the list of all the different battles there. I think I did, I don't know, 20 of them or something. It's a preview of what happened today. And you say, well, you know, I think they've actually got a pretty good shot at at least holding their ground here. But that's, of course, now hindsight. You know, on the Russian side of things, I was surrounded by people at RAND uh, and elsewhere across the intelligence community who believed that the Russians' physical capabilities equated to combat power and bought into every bit of disinformation that the Russians were throwing out there that they've been doing, by the way, since the Soviet, well before the Cold War, about their own capabilities, you know, the 10 foot tall Soviet Superman. And there were way too many of us that bought into that. I I was a little skeptical. I can, you know, I can go back and point to some of the work that our, our teams at RAND published prior to the invasion, where we were raising questions about the conscript army and everything. But the lack of growth I think has been real, has has been, was surprising. You know, we go back and look at it now, you can explain all of it in retrospect. But there was a whole Russian military modernization process after the, after the Georgia war 
that we all assumed it was at least progressing to some extent through the professional contract force. And it very clearly was not. So, and the whole idea that the Russian recon strike complex, which had NATO terrified, um, you know, turned out to be kind of a flop. That that surprised me too. So we've, we, meaning the, the US, we, we've on several occasions overestimated the, the capabilities of conventional foes. You know, I, we did this with the Soviets. We've done this with the Iraqis. We did it with the, the Russians in Ukraine. Why does this happen? I mean, what, 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 what is going on when we, severely overestimate. And and I'll just amend my comment about the Soviets. I think there was great fear about their conventional capacity at the end of World War II into the 50s. And not to say that they they weren't highly dangerous, but they had just finished fighting a war that absolutely devastated them. I'm not sure how much the, the Soviets could bring to the table, so to speak, with fighting capacity. Yet you look at some of the the intelligence uh, estimates from the U.S. and they're saying, ah, oh, you know, the the bear is is uh, ready and and poised to uh, to continue fighting. So yeah, I'm just curious your your response to, I don't know if tendency is the right word, but we've certainly displayed some large failures in correctly estimating the capabilities of enemies, particularly conventional forces. Yes, we have. And to be fair, we all you know we're not the only ones that get it wrong. You know, sure. clearly the Russians did a pretty bad job of estimating Ukrainian capabilities as well, right? So the, I, the, one of the failures that's common across all intelligence estimates is uh, the lack of will-to-fight analysis. And so if you believe, again, that war is a contest of opposing wills and will-to-fight matters, uh, perhaps more than anything else, and you don't even bother to analyze or assess will-to-fight, then you might as well expect to get it wrong. So a great example there would be perhaps the Iraqis in the Gulf War, and then the Iraqis again in 2014, and then the Ukrainians in, in 2022, right? So I can go on down the list of failures to accurately assess well the fight. And then the physical capabilities of combat power and training and leadership and all of the other things that matter and are integrated and interwoven with well the fight, they're all you know intrinsic and, and inseparable. We don't have a good definition of combat power or terms like that. And so we don't even have a good way of rating combat power just on the technical side with just looking at material aspects of capability. So you know, our, our assessments are based on old Soviet tables, you know, and, and it's a terrible way to, to assess capability. So in the absence of a structured process, what are we left with? We're left with the adversary's propaganda, which is they're always going to play up their own capabilities. We do it too. You know, we talk about our own our own prowess, military prowess, and we try to scare the adversary and they try to scare us. And so if you have to take those things at face value and you count tanks and trucks and and you assume that they all work, then yeah, you're gonna you're gonna overestimate, right? And and we tend to do that quite frequently. So, you know, it's kind of a perfect storm of bad assumptions. I meant to ask you this earlier. What do you think about the the practice of categorizing war into regular and irregular? Is that helpful? Is it a, a false dichotomy? Does it hinder our understanding rather than promote it? That was like a rhetorical question, right? So, yeah, of course, it's it's uh, it's silly, right? And irregular war, I mean, I'm not the first person to say this, of course, is the most common kind of war. So it's anything but irregular. So the term itself makes makes no sense whatsoever. And that if you, depending on what level of, of tactical engagement you want to think about, you know, or rate the word war, 
if it's company on company, there's plenty of that going on in all sorts of irregular, quote unquote, irregular wars around the world. So I don't think it's actually not as it, not only is it not helpful, it's it's misleading in a way that allows us to characterize conventional war uh, in a way that is inaccurate. Ben, as we start to reach the the end of our, our conversation, I, I wanted to ask about your experiences as a doctoral student at, at King's College London, and you studied war studies, and I've, I've heard nothing but good things about that program. And I'd just like to hear about your experiences there. How did you grow as a thinker, communicator there? And, and what did you do your work on, your PhD work on? I have nothing but great things to say about King's. And I, I really enjoyed my time working with Theo Farrell, who was the director of the war studies department at the time. You know, it took me about four and a half years. I was doing it part-time, so I was working full-time at RAND, so it was uh, nights and weekends. You know, it's it's not ideal to do a PhD off-site part-time because you're not getting the value of interaction, daily interaction with the professors and fellow students. They really help you think through the literature and theory and steer you away maybe from making some bad decisions. Um, you know, I, I probably was way too broaden my thinking, right? So understanding the the limits of what you can do with a PhD. However, I really enjoyed it. And, you know, you pick something that you love and you sink yourself into it. And I picked the culture of adaptability in the U.S. Marine Corps. And so I got to dig into Marine history and literature. One of the things I did was filmography. And so I watched about 300 movies that included Marines or people playing Marines. And, you know, I've seen every bad movie with Marines in it ever made, uh, dating back to even the 1920s. It was just a lot of fun. And, you know, eventually I'll turn that into a book as well. But I couldn't recommend it enough. As long as you really know why you want to get a PhD, King's is the place to do it. What advice would you give to listeners, especially service members interested in pursuing a a higher level degree at at King's? Find an advisor who is working on things that interest you. Make sure that you pick something that is really of interest to you, that you understand what a PhD is and is not, so it's not a policy paper, and that you are writing about something for general academic knowledge. And then be narrow and don't be too ambitious, right? So pick a concise, digestible topic, particularly if you're doing it part-time, and you're not going to change the world. So you're going to make minor advances, but if you find something that's interesting, you can make it your own. So if you find a database or a, an archive or a story or a narrative or a history somewhere that really interests you and nobody else has done it, you can own it and get something really useful out of it and, and have fun doing it. Ben, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I've learned a ton. Every time we talk, uh, you get me to think about things differently and you know, open my mind up to new interpretations and, and information that you know, I, w- I wasn't aware of. So I just want to thank you for coming on the podcast. And I'm very, very excited to share this with our listeners. As I ask all my, my guests, do you have any parting thoughts or shots for our listeners? Damien, I think that's it. No, I think I said a lot and I just, I really enjoyed talking with you and, and I hopefully we'll be able to come back on once the book is published. Absolutely. No, we will, we'll definitely do that. And um super excited to, uh, to see that thing published. I think it's, I think it's going to really advance the field and get people talking and uh, you know, bring more, more objectivity to conversations that in, in many cases are lacking it. So thank you again, Ben. Yeah, it was great talking with you. Thanks for having me on. <laughs>